You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. As we dive in today, I thought it would be fun to let you know a little bit more about me. Uh, and if you have been kind of new with us and maybe not sure about what this crazy ball guy is all about, like what is this deal, I sure would love to kind of let you know a little bit about me. But here's the, here's the truth. Here's the truth before I start. I've always thought that my testimony, which is just a fancy word for my how I met Jesus, I, I really thought that it was boring. Okay? Like it really was. And, and, and I mean it. I'll, I'll let you judge for yourself here in a second, but here's what I mean. See, see for yourself. Um, I grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota. Boring. Okay, yeah, so that, that's where I'm at. I, I went to first, a little church, First Christian Church. It had about 200 some people that attended there, and that included livestock as well. Like we're talking boring, right? All right. Uh, my mom was the Christian education director at the church, and that meant that we volunteered for everything. Everything. I, I was part of every kids programming, every youth group, every choir, every anything that was happening at that little church, I was there. Like, I was a part of it. I was kind. I was nice. I was polite. I only swore when people weren't watching. Like, I mean, I was, I was a good kid. I was voted, and this might come as a shock, but I was voted class brown noser my senior year of high school. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that funny, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Right? No, class, class brown noser. I was also class jock, though, too, so if that helps at all. You know what I mean? Um, but I was also part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I, I, was, I helped lead it every month. I was at every weekly meetings. But, I mean, I was doing it. But here's the deal. I lived like a Christian, but I never was actually being a Christian. So, so from the outside looking in, it looked like I had a relationship with God. But really, I had just a really good mask on. I had a great mask on. That was until my freshman year of college when I was at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event and Darren Duran, the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the time, came up and tapped me on the shoulder and says, hey, Brian, hey, listen, great, th- glad that you're here. Just want to let you know you're not a Christian. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hey, listen, I-, I am. I'm a nice guy. My name is Brian. He goes, no, no, I know. You're a nice guy. You're just not a follower of Jesus. So, uh, hey, if you ever want to talk about that, great, but we'll just see you later. Like, Mike drops and leaves me. I'm like, all right, D, whatever, man, okay. Um, but, but it was that conversation that sparked something in me, and, and it made me reevaluate my entire relationship with Jesus, or even, even if I had one. And so on Thanksgiving uh, break, 1996, I walked to the front of that small little church. I, I met one of the elders at the front of that small little church, and I professed my love of Jesus and got baptized right there to the surprise of everyone that was there. And here's why they were surprised. And, and it, it, they weren't surprised because I was some massive sinner that they're like, I never thought that Brian Hunt would ever beat Jesus, you know, nothing like that. No, they were surprised because they thought that I already was a believer in Jesus. They're like, wait, can you do it over again? Like, I thought we did this one. I remember I was here. I, you know, no, no, I, I had fooled the Christians that I was a Christian. So, so that day I decided to stop looking like a Christian and I just started to actually become a Christian. And so that is my testimony. Pretty boring, right? I mean, see, see what I mean? I mean, that's pretty boring stuff. There was no drug addiction. There was no running away from home moments. There was no regrettable tattoos. There was no child out of wedlock. Not even a run-in with the law to spice it up a little bit. Nothing. I was a good kid living a good life until I realized that I needed God in my life. That, that was it. 
So here's what I used to do, though. Here's what I used to do. Since my story wasn't all that exciting, I thought I would I kind of not share it. I wouldn't tell it. I mean, sure, I'd, I'd share bits and pieces if I was speaking to different groups here or there and highlight different things. But honestly, I really didn't think that anyone cared. I just didn't think. I mean, the stories that really stick with people and that you remember, I mean, those are the ones that are like massive change, you know? Like we're talking like the, like the, like the satanic drummer from the band, like all of a sudden met Jesus, you know, or the hell's angel. Like that's the kind of stuff. Like God shooting lightning bolts from heaven and like landing on their car and turning the radio station to Caleb. And it's like, ah, you know, like that kind of stuff. But, but for me, I didn't, I didn't have that. So I was just convinced that my story wasn't effective. But what I've come to realize is that my story actually does speak to some people. It speaks to the athlete. It might speak to the student. It, it could even speak to the good person that's out there that think that they could just be good in order to be right with God. And when I finally got over that, I realized something very valuable that I believe is important for us all to know. And what I want you to leave here hearing more than anything else is this one idea. Your story matters and was meant to be shared. Your story matters, and it was meant to be shared. Don't let anyone tell you that your story, your life, your road to Jesus isn't important or worth telling. And I say that because where we're at in this series, that we're, it's called Conversations. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to, like it says, learning to talk about Jesus. How do we have a conversation with Jesus by simply having a conversation with people by talking to them? And, and, and we realized that the way that Jesus connected with people when he was in his ministry wasn't by yelling or screaming or quoting a bunch of scripture at them. No, it actually was by talking with them. It's like getting to know them. It's like trying to show that he cared for them. That was the whole, his whole plan, his whole MO. And in the world that we live in right now, you, you and I just need to know the same care, the same attention, that same love that Jesus showed is actually needed and very important today too in our world. Which is why we just have to remember that when we are wanting to talk to somebody about Jesus, they are not our project, okay? They are a person that needs to be cared for. So important to remember. So we've been trying to provide a very simple way of having a conversation with somebody about Jesus by using an acronym that we've called TALK. Isn't that amazing and like super creative? You know what I mean? Like, wow, years. Anyway, but, but it stands for something. So T stands for think about your one. A stands for ask questions. L is lead with your story. And then K is keep Jesus involved. So we've already done some work already. We've covered T, which is think about your one. And the one is the person that God has placed in your life that you need to invest in and create a relationship with. That's the one that God has placed on our minds. Now, last week, my friend Kevin did a fantastic job covering this idea of asking questions, that we need to ask people questions in a genuine way to be able to hear about their story. But, but no matter what, we have to maintain a genuine desire for the person with the hopes that as we're asking them about their, their, their story, that they might just say, hey, tell me about your story, which then brings up the opportunity to lead with your story. But as I said, Satan is going to try to downplay your testimony so that you won't share it with other people. He'll do that over and over. It's, it's a trick. It's this devious way to be able to keep your love of Jesus hidden. That's what he wants to do. And we have to fight that. You have to fight that and realize that our story matters and was meant to be shared. Remember that. Peter's words actually are really haunting and challenging to us in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where he says, Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
So as you read that, you're like, oh my goodness, how do I do that? How, how can I be prepared for everyone and when? Always. Like, that's pretty crazy, you know? How, how can I be prepared to give my hope, and the hope that, 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 that we're talking about, that's Jesus, how am I prepared for everyone always? Well, I, I want to make it simple for us. I'm going to make it simple, one, make it clear so you can wrap your heads around it. And really, to answer this is as simple as answering three questions. Three, three questions that you need to answer. And I want you to write these down somewhere. I want you to type them in your phone, tattoo them on your arm. I don't know what your deal is, but I want you to write these down somewhere so you can remember them. Number one is this. Who was I before I met Jesus? First question. Second question. How did I meet Jesus? Okay. And then number three, last one is, what is my life like after Jesus? So if we know the answer to these three questions right here, you will have formulated your story to be able to share with other people. It's that simple. But as you start to think about this, as you start to think, okay, well, what would my answers be like this? I know what you're probably thinking, because you're probably like me. You're probably thinking, well, is there like an example, maybe like something in the back of the book where I could like see an example of how this all works? So, so today, I actually want to give you an example. And I want you to give you an example of one of the most, I believe, one of the most amazing lives in the entire Bible in the life of the Apostle Paul. And, and here's what I want us to think about and that's going to be so cool as, as we walk through that. In most cases, really in a lot of cases, when you learn about somebody in the Bible, you have to do it in, in different ways. Like you have to piece together their life in a way. Like you have to kind of find out through other sources or maybe some other eyewitnesses that have been there or maybe people that talked about them. Or you might use like cultural context clues to figure out exactly what's happening and what's interesting, though, is that that gives you some good little nuggets to kind of go off of. But what's amazing about Paul's story is that it's all right here. Yeah, it's all, it's all right here to be able to read about. But guess what? It's written by him. He tells us. Paul tells us about his testimony. We don't have to say, well, you know, I heard through so-and-so and this person told me that, this, this, and that. No, no. It's, it's all right here. No, Paul himself recounts his own story about who he was before Jesus, how he met Jesus, and what his life was like after Jesus. And he doesn't just say it like one time in some obscure passage in the New Testament. No, no. He talks about it all the time. It's like he leads with it. He's just telling people all the time, this is who I was. This is how I met him. This is where I'm at now. But, but here's something I want you to keep in mind as we kind of begin here today. The Bible is broken into two parts. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible before Jesus came, is before he came. Now, the New Testament, shocking, would be the part after he came. So it was when he was born in his ministry, and then eventually when he's going to be coming back. That's the idea. The, 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 there's 66 total books in the Bible, and there are actually 27 books in the New Testament specifically. But take a look at the, this is the number of books that Paul wrote. He wrote all these. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and some theologians think that he wrote some of the book of Hebrews, but we'll just say that the 13 that we know of is pretty impressive. 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament written by one man, that's less, just under 50% of the Bible accounted, by, accounted for by Paul. So you would think, well, dude, I mean, if you're writing all of that, that's like some pretty epic stuff right there, you know? So that probably means like you were probably like born in a church and like your mom and dad were Jesus lovers and like all this stuff is just like super easy. You probably had a, a boring testimony, Paul, because isn't that what we think about people in the Bible? You know, what I mean, like really think about it. Like we, we sanitize the lives of people in the Bible so much. You know, and, and, and we elevate them to this place that makes them almost superhuman and you can't quite touch them. They, like all the people are in glass cases and you can just kind of look at them. 
And if we modernize it a little bit, it's like saying that we think that most of the people in the Bible are like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. You know what I mean? Right? But in reality, they probably are like Walter White from Breaking Bad. You know, like they're, they're that weird chemistry teacher selling meth on the side and all of a sudden they meet Jesus. Like that's kind of what it is. Now, I say that because we need to know that we need to know that so we don't put them on pedestals that they never were meant to be on. We need to know that so that when we compare our lives to their lives that we might be able to say, at least I wasn't that bad, right? We need to know that so that we can remember how much God saves a wretch like them so he might save a wretch like us. And we need to know that so we can see how much Jesus really did, how much he did to, to be able to, to transform these lives. And Paul, boy, such a great example of a miraculous transformation you never would have saw coming. So in order to do it, let's walk through these three questions. And the first one we want to use is, who is Paul before Jesus? Right? That's our first question we're trying to, to do. Um, now, again, we're going to use a lot of Paul's words, a lot of Paul's words specifically here. And I want us to start in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to hear Paul start to tell his testimony. Verse 12, it says, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now, since we know the end of the story, we know where it's going to kind of end up, that Paul's going to become a Christian, it would make sense that you would think like, oh, well, he's just starting off by thanking Jesus. But before we start to think that this is like the athlete in the interview or the person that wins the Emmy that's like, I just want to thank the big man upstairs, like before something like that. No, no, Paul is genuinely thanking Jesus in a deep, in a passionate way for everything that he's done in his life. But you have to say, well, why? Why all these heavy, flowery words towards Jesus? Why would he say that? Well, look at verse 13, because he continues. He says this. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. That, that's some heavy stuff right there. I, I mean, he says, I love Jesus because he forgave me from being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Let's just say if you saw that on a dating profile for somebody, you're not like, ooh, this one seems really good. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent man, swipe, whatever, right? No, you're not going to go after that. But really, how bad could it possibly be? Maybe Paul is just a really good communicator, and he's just using these big flowery words to get people excited. Maybe so. Well, listen to what he continues to talk about in the book of Galatians. Galatians, he continues his testimony. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, for you have heard of my previous ways of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, isn't it true that if you want to appreciate somebody, you need to know where they came from? Right? Because part of who you are is made up in where you were brought up and who you, you know, where you were educated at, maybe your friends, maybe the people that invested in your life, certainly the teams that you root for, your favorite taco truck, like important things that are in your life. That makes up who you are. And the same is true about Paul. To know Paul, you actually need to know where he came from at least a little bit. For starters, Paul's name wasn't originally Paul. It was Saul. So again, not quite the dating profile you want. Yeah, hey, my name is Paul. Actually, Saul. Right, you know, but it, it was Saul, and he grew up in a popular trades town that was kind of known, it was, it was known as Tarsus. He also was brought up by a family that were Pharisees, which meant that they, the Pharisees were the, the ruling sect of the Judaism at the, at the time. He became motherless at the, by the age of nine, but his father was a tent maker, and was so they were, they were financially well off. 
But in addition to being financially well off, they were also they had a deep religious heritage, which meant that he was highly educated. So from a young age, he would have been able to speak Greek. He had a working knowledge of Latin, and he also could speak Aramaic, which is the derivative language of Hebrew. For the record, just for the record, I can barely speak English. Okay, like that's all I got going. You know what I mean? Like. That's it, okay? But he's speaking three languages plus, you know? But, but by the age of 13, he also would have mastered all of Jewish history, the Psalms and the prophets. What does that mean? Remember that Old Testament I was talking about? He memorized it. He would have memorized most of the Old Testament, right? That's crazy, okay? And it was shortly after he became a teenager, though, that he was shipped off to Jerusalem to continue his Pharisee training under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Let me pull you up to speed on what that really means in our time. Think of it this way. Think of, think of Saul as Luke Skywalker and Gamaliel like Yoda. Okay, so that's kind of what we're talking about. He was training to become a Pharisee Jedi under Gamaliel. That's kind of what it was. So Saul was talented, though, so talented that he was, he was overshadowing all of his classmates. And so this placed him on a fast track to a seat on the highest and most, and most important ruling council in all of Jerusalem. It was called the Sanhedrin which meant that Saul was on his way to becoming one of the most influential, one of the most powerful men in all of Jerusalem. But the greatest threat to this power that the Jews really wanted happened to be this growing group of men and women that were following something called the way. And the way, um, they followed this recently murdered rabbi who supposedly was raised from the dead after being crucified. You might have heard of him. His name was Jesus, right? That, that's who they're talking about. Right? It, was, it was Jesus and his followers that posed the biggest threat to the Jews and is the entire reason that they killed Jesus. Entire reason. And now that he was no longer around, the whole ascending back into heaven thing kind of took him off the map, the only thing left was to be able to persecute and get rid of the followers of Jesus or of the way. That became the primary goal of the Sanhedrin. They wanted to rid the world, and especially Jerusalem, of these, the remnant of the followers of Jesus, wanted them to get rid of them. And so to do that, they would hand down capital punishment for people that wouldn't refuse to say that Jesus was Lord and Savior. And this actually became the fate of one of Jesus' followers by the name of Stephen. And we read in Acts chapter 7 that after he was thrown in front of the Sanhedrin, Stephen gives this passionate, this speech, and he tells these men and women, they're about to kill him, tells these men in the Sanhedrin, said, hey, uh, uh, if you don't repent, right, you need to turn to Jesus, and you repent and turn to Jesus. Well, they weren't having any part of it. And so it's in the middle of this mob scene that we read in Acts chapter 7 what actually happens next. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 59, it says, while they were stoning him, so they decided to stone Stephen, rocks, throwing at his head, wanting to murder him, right? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now listen. And Saul approved of their killing. So who was Paul before he met Jesus? And he was more than a guy with a different name. Paul hits it on the head. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, he says, Paul was a blasphemer, meaning he would defame the name of Jesus, didn't believe in him at all. He persecuted. He would take people that believed in Jesus and do terrible things to them. And he was a violent man that at the very least condoned murder, if not murdered Christians himself. This is who Paul was. And yet what I love about Paul is he doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't he? Doesn't sugarcoat it. He didn't, you know, shrink back and say, oh, no, 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 they're blowing this out of proportion. I wasn't really that bad. Not that big of a deal. They're making a big deal out of nothing. 
No, Paul says, this is who I was before I met Jesus. This is who I was. But the great pastor and author Chuck Swindoll said it so beautifully about the life of Paul when he says, the better we understand the darkness of his past, the more we will understand his gratitude for grace. So good. And can I just tell you that when you're answering the question of who you were before Jesus, you need to be honest too. You need to be brutally honest and say it for what it is. Maybe you need to say, I cheated on my wife and I ruined my family. I was a drug addict and I almost killed myself. I chose terrible relationships trying to fill this empty space that was inside of me. I decided that if I was good enough, then God would be okay with me and that I didn't need God after all. Just Just call it for what it is. That there is no value in pretending it either didn't happen or it wasn't a big deal or that it wasn't even real. No, the value is is in the grit and the grime of the realness of your life, of what you went through and then who you were. That's what people really want to see and that's what people really want to know. They want to know what was really going on and because of that, we know that our story matters. It's meant to be shared. But after we answer that question of who we were before Jesus, we need to then know how our lives collided with him, which leads us to see how Paul would answer this question. How did Paul meet Jesus? How did Paul meet Jesus? I mean, how is it possible that a Jesus-hating, murder-condoning, Jewish religious zealot with all kinds of power would ever come in contact with Jesus? That's the last person he would ever want to even talk about. You would have to think that the stars would literally have to collide for something like this to happen. But what you need to know, and I want you to hear me clearly, you need to know this. God won't give up on anyone. Peter, Peter, someone who knows about this, about God's grace is, is, is better than anybody else. Let me just tell you, he once said this, 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This says that God's deepest desire is for everyone to have a how-did-you-meet-Jesus moment. He wants everybody. No matter how gnarly your life is, no matter what your past is like, he wants everyone's lives to collide with Jesus and for us to submit to him as our Lord, which is exactly what he wanted for Saul. It's exactly what we start to see happen in Acts chapter 9, actually. Flip over to Acts chapter 9 if you're with me. Starting in verse 1, it says... Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is intense. Again, we can't, we can't vanilla sugarcoat this either, guys. Saul wasn't deciding to go on a sightseeing trip to Damascus. He wasn't trying to blow off some steam. He wasn't going on a holiday to be able to kind of get away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. No, no, no. He is literally on his way to Damascus with legal right to imprison and to punish and maybe even murder more Christians. That is what is happening. He is at the height of his sin, the very pinnacle of his sin. That is until verse 3. Look what happens in verse 3. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So, <laughs> so check this out, okay? So Saul is on his way to play mob boss again in Damascus, and he's literally blind. He's literally blinded and knocked off his donkey onto his donkey. See if you got that, okay, right? That's what happens to him. And, and, and who, would do, who would do such a thing? Who would, who would dare to do this to, to Saul, this, this important, powerful man? Who? Jesus. <laughs> like, the Jesus did this. And if I use Brianese, it's basically what Jesus is like. He's like, dude, seriously, what are you doing? What gives? Why are you treating people so terribly, people that believe in me? Just knock it off. What are you doing? Your bonehead, stop it. Jesus is trying to shake Saul loose from this life that he thought was so righteous and right and going to bring him everything that he wanted. Saul thought that this is what he wanted, that this would bring him power and fame and success. And in order to do that, in order to get a hold of him, Jesus had to like shake him loose, had to get his attention. He, he had to get a hold of him, and, and, and Jesus had to speak to Saul, to, to him, not to anybody else. Look at this little, little, little scripture niblet that we just kind of run past so quickly. Look in verse 7 again, so good. It says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Do you get this? Like, they heard it, but they didn't get it. The, the, the men didn't get it. Why couldn't they understand it? Because it wasn't for them. The message was for Saul and Saul alone. So listen to me. This is the same thing for you and for me. Your story is about how Jesus reached you. You can't borrow someone else's story. I can't bandwagon onto somebody else's story and say, you know what, that's way better. Maybe if I can just, maybe. No, 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 no. Your story is your story. Jesus wants to speak to you. Because, because he knows you. He made you. He loves you individually. So Jesus is going to speak to you about how the life that you think that you're trying to live right now is actually not giving you life at all, but it's taking your life. And how it's actually blinding you from what can really be lived out if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So isn't it just like poetically perfect that Jesus blinds Saul in this moment? I mean, he blinds him so that he has, he has to rely on somebody else for everything. All of his power, all of his control, all of his comfort, all of his everything was stripped away in the blink of an eye. He was blind. He was scared. He has no idea what's going to happen next. So what does Jesus do? <laughs> so good. He brings somebody else into Saul's story. He brings a man by the name of Ananias, who is a believer in Jesus Christ. But when Jesus comes to him in a dream... <laughs> And he says, hey, hey, Ananias, I want you to go talk to Saul, the Christian killer. <laughs> yeah, Ananias is like, oh, man, hey, listen, I'm a little busy. Like, I don't know if I really want to die today. You know, he's like, I don't know, you know. But, but this was the one that God placed in Ananias' life. And, and he was asking him to be obedient to what he was called to do. But, but think about this. This is also part of Ananias' story now, too. 
his obedience to what Jesus says because it now becomes part of his Jesus story too. How cool. And the same is true for you and for me. As you share your story, as you talk with your one, you are writing new words in your pages with Jesus. So, so look what happens when Ananias gets out of his own way and starts to be obedient to Jesus. Verse 17, this is so good. I love the Bible. Look at this, verse 17, check it out. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Through the faithfulness of Ananias, through the faithfulness of Ananias, he got to be part of Saul's story of redemption and transformation in Jesus. He got to witness, think about this, he got to witness the scales of Saul's old life literally fall to the floor, and he got to see new life and new eyes come to him as he started to follow Jesus instead of fighting Jesus. And if you haven't caught on yet, this is all of our stories. It is a story of fighting Jesus and hopefully eventually following Jesus. And that's why, listen, your story matters and it was meant to be shared. Your story matters. It's meant to be shared. Don't run from your past because your past only shines a brighter light on how amazing your future is in Jesus. Don't run from it. So, so what happens to Saul? Right? So what happens to Saul after he's stopped in his tracks, miraculously transformed by Jesus on the road to Damascus? I mean, after that happens, you have to believe that like, his life got super great. You know what I mean? Like That's what happens when you follow Jesus. You know, Instantly, you know how to play the acoustic guitar. Of course you do. You can sing in perfect five-part harmony. Your language changes. You don't swear anymore. You use words like fiddle-finkle. You know, when you're really mad, you know. You have no more pain. BMWs fall from the sky. Everything is perfect. When you had acne, it's all gone. Like, life is perfect, right? No problems ever again. So was that true? Was, was that what happened to, to Saul's life when he became Paul? Well, let, let, let's see how he answers this question, right? The question is, what was Paul's life after he met Jesus? And again, let's just let Paul tell us. Let's, tell us, let, let's let him tell us about this newfound life that he has in Jesus. And I'm about to tell you, it's more than having a brand new name. Let, let, listen to what he says. Again, Paul says it. He says, buckle up, by the way. Here we go. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received, the, the Jews, the, received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger of false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wait, 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 wait. Pastor, you got to read that again. That ain't right, man. That can't be right. You mean to tell me that Paul met Jesus, left this old life, committed to follow him, and when he did that, he got the ever-loving snot kicked out of him for the rest of his life? Yes. Right? That's intense. 
So if that's true, then why would a man destined for a life of power and influence, who is passionate about what he believed, who is educated beyond his worth, who seemed to have everything going for him, why would he give up all of that? And, and even more, why would Paul ever tell a story like this so people could hear? I mean, if you write 13 books of the New Testament, you can change some stuff so you look a little bit better. Why would he keep it in there? Because this flies in the face of everything our world tells us that we want, doesn't it? We live in a, in a world that tells us our life should have power and wealth and influence and comfort and be independent. That's what we believe. That's what we need. Yet Paul chooses to embrace a life that doesn't promise any of those things. So what changes in a Christian hater to become a Christian church planter who is completely sold out to Jesus regardless of the cost? What, what is it? It's what we read in the rest of the verse that we started off here today in 1 Timothy. Listen again. Again, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Guys, it's right there. It's right there. Right here, Paul realizes an eternity-changing fact about himself. It's right here. And what he realizes he is a sinner. He is a, a sinner who is apart from God and he's destined to an eternity apart from God. That's what he says. But he also comes face to face with this truth too, right in here. And that is that Jesus came into this world to save sinners like him, who was the worst, he said. Who came to save sinners like you came to save sinners like me. Paul's story is about God's radical grace on the life of someone who should have been written off, but that God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, has now written his name in the book of life. So if Jesus can save a wretch like Paul, he can save you, and he can save me. Because your story, it matters. It's meant to be shared. I want you to listen to a story of redemption and transformation from my friend Scott. Take a listen. Well, my mom passed away when I was 16. After she passed, uh, I was very angry. I was very, very angry. The road rage was pretty good, um, or bad. And uh, I felt I was like cold and distant most of the time. Almost two years ago, my me and my ex split up, and uh, she asked me this question that kind of haunted me. It was, you know, when you look in the mirror, are you happy with yourself? My answer was yes, but 
Then I really started to look in the mirror and I really started thinking about, or really started feeling that I had this hole kind of that couldn't, hasn't been filled for a long time. And whether that I couldn't fill it with relationships or hobbies or, uh, you know, just whatever. Honestly, I, I when I came back to church, it was just, I was honestly grasping at straws. It had been 20 years since I had been to church. And uh, the first sermon I heard in 20 years was about how to be single. I'm sitting, all right, God, I'm listening. <laughs> My brother and his wife, I couldn't count the amount of hours we spent in his driveway just talking about life and the Bible and theology. And I got uh, invited to be in a fellowship group on Saturday mornings. And those guys were awesome, man. They were just uh, very real and authentic, real with their struggles. And uh, I learned a lot. So I decided to look into Paul's writings. Romans 1 through 3 talks about, you know, just you're a wretched sinner and you need God. And that was the looking in the mirror. It was like, whether it be by word, action, or thought, I can't live up to my own standards, let alone God's. Getting into scripture and and just listening to a lot of different things, I'm, I feel like I'm less angry most of the time. I'm much more forgiving now than I was then and not just sort of an empty platitude forgiveness, more, you know, from the heart. When I'm having trouble, uh, moving forward and, and all of that stuff. I, I tend to look at Romans 5.3 for me personally. And it's, uh, we gotta rejoice in our trials and they create perseverance and perseverance creates endurance and uh, endurance creates character. What did getting baptized mean to you at that time? I was sitting there just kind of twisting my Bible. Like, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> and uh, and I was scared, I really was. It, it made it a lot easier knowing that you were gonna be in the lobby there, you know, and uh, that my daughter was there to see it and that I was gonna be able to explain to her why I did what I did afterwards. We all have these hurdles that we gotta get over, whether it's intellectual hurdles that are, you know, does God exist or was Jesus real? life, death, resurrection, that builds a bridge to the leap of faith, which isn't really a leap, to where it's just, you're just walking across the bridge. And uh, if it's a heart issue, if you're, you know, reluctant to uh, trust, you know, start with your head and your heart will follow. You know, if you need to take that step, there's, just do it. story matters and it was meant to be shared. That's Scott's story, but what's your story? What's your story? And maybe for some of you, you maybe you resonate with what Scott said. Maybe, maybe you're at a spot where you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Maybe you've never stepped across that line of faith. Maybe you need to walk across that bridge of faith. But there's something interesting, I think, that as we kind of prepare our hearts for communion that jumped out at me in uh, my study for this, this sermon, um, and it 
communion, we remember Jesus as he died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb for three days, and then he was raised to life. And because of his defeating death, we can defeat death through his grace. That's what we, that's what we believe, and that's what we celebrate. But I thought it was interesting as I was reading this scripture for, I don't know how many hundreds of time on Thursday, the first time I preached this, I, I was reading and all of a sudden it just jumped out at me. I'm like, man, look at that. That's, that's awesome. And here's what jumped out at me. If you remember when Saul was on that road to Damascus and he was getting ready to go and Jesus blinds him, if you remember what happened is that he was blinded and he's taken to this place in this home and he was blind, scales on his eyes for three days. And for three days, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. It's as if he was dying. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was in a tomb for three days and was dead? Being on the third day, he rose to defeat death. And isn't it beautiful that on that third day, Ananias came and he touched Saul and he he said, the Holy Spirit is now in you and now you're going to do something different with your life. And the scales fell from his eyes and it says that he ate and regained his strength. And what did he do? He got baptized. His natural reaction to following Jesus was to get baptized. So maybe for some of you, you need to get baptized. And next week, you're going to have a chance to do that. I would love for you to be a part of that. I want you to go to crossroadsgrace.org slash baptism and get, fill out the, the form there. We want to be ready for you. We're going to have things ready. We want you to do that. Don't wait. Maybe before you leave, you need to type that in and do that. We're going to have that t- t- next week, and I would love for you to make that part of your story, that you could have that moment in time where you said, this is... This is where my, my, my life aligned with Jesus. Now, baptism is not, about, is not about anything special about the water. Baptism is about an external decision that you've already made internally. It's by publicly saying, I don't care who knows. I just want the world to know about me and Jesus. So whether you're online right now, this would be a time for you to click on that link. Whether you're here, I want you to consider being a part of that. But I want you to get baptized. I want you to get dunked. Take your next step with Jesus so your story can continue to be written. But today, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we worship in a moment, I just want us to allow the Spirit to move in your life. Wherever you're at in those questions, who you were before, how did you meet him, what's your life like after, answer those questions. And if you don't have an answer, let's get an answer today. Let's let Jesus move in your life so your story can begin. Your story matters. It's meant to be shared. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you would just move in this place. I thank you that you saved a wretch like me, even though on the outside I was a good boy doing good things. I was a sinner. I was living a life that was fake. But God, I'm so grateful for your patience, as you say in 2 Peter. I'm grateful that you saw something in me and that you saved, that you you sent Jesus to save me. And so, Father, I just am so overwhelmed at that. And I just pray right now that for those here, that if someone doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that the answer to the question is just, who are they like before Jesus? If it stops there, that maybe today they answer the second question, what was my life? How did my life collide with you? And maybe right now, this is the time. If there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior Jesus, I pray right now that they would simply say, I'm a sinner. I'm apart from you, Jesus, because of that sin. And I know that I'm destined for an eternity without you. But I know that you died on the cross for my sins. You were buried, and on the third day, you raised from the dead to defeat death, and now you offer me grace, and that you cover my sins. I repent of my past. I embrace the future that's with you, and I want a new story. God, you tell us that if anyone claims the name of Jesus, their name now is written in the book of life. Their story changes for all eternity, and now they can tell a new story to others. 
God, do a work in this place. If we've known you for a long time and we've gone astray, if we've just lost our, our, our spark, Father, would you reignite that so that we can live for you? And might the words of this song as we sing it just wash over us and encourage us to know that our story matters because you tell us that we matter. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.